This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, the gang takes up the gun and upholds Gonzalo Thought as we turn to the Peruvian Maoist group Sendero Luminoso, or in English, The Shining Path. We read The Shining Path and the Future of Peru, written by Gordon McCormick for the Rand Corporation in 1990. And we trace the wacky misadventures of one professor, Abmeo Guzman, better known as Comrade Gonzalo. So, uh, I think we wanted to start night's episode off with a story. Yeah, Grant has a story. It's not a very long story, but I, I wanted to relate to you that my kind of earlier life experience with The Shining Path was a friend of mine who I was talking to about Marxism, and, and she mentioned to me that her dad was a Marxist journalist and lied on some papers to go get to go to peru and go cover the the shining path and uh when he came back he wasn't a marxist anymore wow so that's all you need to know about the shining path pretty much yeah i actually have a related story too that uh someone i know who studies um anthropology in peru and works with indigenous tribes there says that basically communism is almost universally hated because of the Shining Path. And so, for this week, we decided to read the Rand Corporation's report on Shining Path, which is from 1990, I think. Because eventually the Shining Path fails to, you know, create a worker state or whatever they wanted in Peru. And now they're basically just a drug gang. What I try to tell you, this country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. And their leader, Gonzalo, who their whole cult of personality was built around, got arrested, and is still in jail to this day. And this was written before all that. So, you actually get the sense that the Shining Path are gonna win this shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was like reading Schumpter. Like, you know they're gonna lose, but this guy, doing his best detached liberal, you know what I mean? Like, just kind of trying to investigate the situation. Not not gonna really weigh in, you know, but uh, but I think maybe these people are gonna win because they're the only organized force. They're the only people like they're the only opposition that has a, a popular base throughout the country. Um, they have these this institutional cell structure that's almost impenetrable, which I thought was really fascinating. I mean, I wonder how impenetrable it was, and how much of that is just a result of like the underdevelopment of like the Peruvian like state apparatus or military or whatever. Shining Path was able to create a base because there are mass sectors of Peruvian society that were pretty much completely outside the purview of the state, except maybe as some kind of like colonizing agent from time to time. You know what I mean? Their base was in the indigenous population. Yeah, that's the thing is that whenever you see this kind of strategy of people's war implemented to any kind of success, it's always in a country where you have a large peasantry. 
But what's interesting here is, is that there isn't the context of like a national liberation struggle. Yeah, these people actually, they claim to be the vanguard of world communism. Yeah. They're I, not fighting for national liberation. They're fighting for communism and cultural revolution, you know. But I think that's kind of a part, big part of like why it failed, right? Like it's almost a study of like the a guerrilla movement as like a pure like communist um, effort. As opposed to say China or Vietnam or other examples where you had like this concept of throwing out, you know, the, the colonizing force and restoring like kind of like national sovereignty as a yeah. way to win kind of like popular legitimacy. Well, when you look at it, you know, in a national liberation movement, you have basically the revolutionary party mobilizes the peasantry in a war to overthrow the colonizers and have land reform in the developmentalist regime. Whereas the Shining Path, they actually were trying to communize the peasantry. And what's interesting is, this isn't covered in this report, but another report I read, it said that basically the, the Shining Path were good at getting the support of these peasants by basically living amongst them, finding out who they really hated and who their, resentment, who their resentments were for, and then mobilizing the peasants in violent actions against these people. Because there's a lot of, you know, in, in, in rural societies, you have a lot of resentments and re desires for revanchism built up over time, especially towards elites and landlords. So they were able to mobilize peasants against these landlords that they hated. But later on during the People's War, when they tried to actually kind of create communism, the peasants actively resisted because they had their own indigenous forms of life and the shining path were trying to force them at gunpoint to abandon them and basically live in you know these maoist type communes and so they had a complete disregard for their own customs and traditions roughly when did they try to like communize like the indigenous peasantry oh uh, i actually don't know the exact timeline but i know that it was so it was around 1983 is when the People's War was launched, right? I think so. I'm a little fuzzy on the dates here myself. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was early 80s when the People's War was launched. There was a preparation time in the 70s. And it kind of builds up over time. Because you have this whole malice strategy of protracted People's War. Where you have different phases. And each phase is supposed to lead into the next phase. And they talk about this in the, in the Rand Corporation piece. So I guess, I don't know, we could just maybe touch on what the idea of protracted people's war is and what the different phases are. It was separated into five points from what I remember of the text. It was separated into five points and it was like a slow and gradual build-up that happened. Like, essentially, like, Gonzalo Guzman got his initial cadre from working at the university, being the head of the philosophy department. For 75 years, you've been fucking everybody. Somebody should do something about this, this horse. Right? Like they're getting away with it. There's no loss anymore. Forget it, man. I mean, anything goes. They've been around a thousand years, okay? They got all the animals figured out. You know what capitalism is? Get fucked. True capitalist if ever I met one. They organized themselves and um, 
these students had connections to the peasants in the countryside because they were peasants coming in to do university, get their education. So they would go back to the countryside and like just work within like the countryside, spreading the ideas, working up to the point where they were building connections. That would be like the main build up initially. And then they would go into like a stage of like propaganda, the deed and like terrorism being done. Yeah, I describe it as, like, a very ad hoc, almost, kind of terrorism. Yeah. The Maoist term is the first phase is called strategic defensive, and the idea is that you go out into the countryside and you mobilize the peasants against, kind of, the remote activities of the state out in the countryside, and you win small victories against the the state and trigger the state into launching a assault back on you, forcing you to kind of go into a strategic defensive where you have to consolidate your territory in these red bases. And so the idea is kind of that you keep on building these red bases through this process of strategic defensive until you get to a point called, I think it's called like strategic equilibrium or something like that, where basically the red bases are strong enough to where they can start going on the offensive against the state. And then that's a new phase altogether, where you're basically surrounding the cities and actually fighting for the cities themselves. And then, you know, then you have victory. And I think that Spetsa probably doesn't totally do justice to the idea of protracted people's war. I, I just looked this up. Mao's, like, three phases of revolutionary war. That's one, organization, consolidation, and preservation of base areas, usually in difficult and isolated terrain. Two, Progressive expansion by terror and attacks on isolated enemy units to obtain arms, supplies, and political support. Three, decision or destruction of the enemy in battle. That's Mao's because I think MLM, because this is the thing, is that there's Maoism, as it's often called. There's often just Marxism-Leninism that sides with China and the Sino-Soviet split. Yeah, Mao Zedong thought. Yeah, yeah, Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. The whole idea of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, and Maoism constituting a third stage in Marxist science comes from the Shining Path. Yeah. So this is the organ. This organization basically founds the basic MLM ideology that we see in groups today, like the Red Guards, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Well, Guzman in the text has a five point program for victory, um, which are uh, one. Agitation and armed propaganda. Two, sabotage against Peru's socioeconomic system. Three, the generalization of the guerrilla struggle. Four, the conquest and expansion of the revolution's support base and the strengthening of the guerrilla army. And five, general civil war, the siege of the cities, and the final collapse of state power. Um, That seems a bit more extensive in terms of its um, outlook. It is a bit more extensive than Mao's, but it's still basically this general idea that This is one of the things that's different about protracted people's war than classic third international style insurrectionism, which is the idea that you eventually wait for the right moment and then the party leads an insurrection against the state or cause some kind of political victory where it has to defend itself through a civil war. Whereas the Maoist idea of protracted people's war is that from the very beginning, you have to basically pick up the gun and build the party through acts of kind of vanguard, you know, violence against the enemy. And it's these, you know, kind of acts that inspire the masses to join you and prove that you're truly the vanguard. 
And so that's why the groups like Red Guards are just like so LARPy and insane because they're doing everything they can up until actually taking up the gun to prove their militancy. And so in The Shining Path, they had this whole metaphysics of violence. And it gets really ludicrous and ridiculous levels where it's almost like this just insane fetishization of violence where they're teaching children like kill chickens when they're five years old to prepare them to kill humans and just you know and there's this idea that the level of like violence assault upon which you're willing to commit yourself to against the state is your level of revolutionary commitment and awareness that's kind of the main question i remember seeing like this interview with michael hart we was talking about how he's like doing journalism and talking to gorillas like in latin america and he was asking him for advice about like, well, what should we do in, in the United States? And like, well, do you have, you have mountains in the United States, right? He's like, they're like, like, yeah. Like, well, you get some guns and get some people, you go up into the mountains and like you start conducting raids, like on, on military bases and stuff. And he was just like, what? <laughs> so like, why don't like these American Maoist groups, like basically just like form militias and like, Oh yeah. Okay. Go, the, go think, into the jungle. I think they are, planning on starting some kind of armed struggle they're just waiting till they feel like they have enough people to win maybe like a small victory or maybe and they're probably too scared to actually ever do it but i think that even for the shining path before they really started to track people's war they partook in various acts of violence for example like they would throw grenades at social democratic meetings and they would attack, like, other leftists. Like, what the Red Guards Austin did recently, and also Red Guards LA, is they literally took a severed pig's head and put it on a street sign and then wrote something about, like, don't vote, have a revolution, or just, like, some vague leftist sloganeering that means nothing. I mean, I'm all for, like, you know, police pig iconography and stuff, but, like, I saw it, like, and it looked like something out of a Batman movie. Mm. Yeah, it looks like something the Joker would do. Yeah. Or, like, some weird, like, grindhouse, like, horror aesthetic. Yeah, like, some purge shit. Yeah, also, there was, like, some stuff about, like, the DSA. Like, there were a few slogans about, like, specifically the DSA being capitalist and social fascist, that sort of thing. That's what made it so weird, too. Yeah, like, third period Stalinist type shit. If it was just, like, we're gonna put the pigs on the run, you know, like, good old-fashioned that shit, but it's, like... To do something like that grotesque about like the DSA, <laughs> like it just it just looks so loony. No, but it really fits the Shining Path. They talk about it with the Tupac Amaru movement in this piece, which was like a more Che Guevara inspired movement, because they were you know incredibly violent against other leftists. You tell your guys in Miami, your friend, it'd be a pleasure. I kill a communist for fun. I made a whole suit out of the skins I ripped off corpses to protest Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Take that, Bernie. <laughs> to become a member of Red Guards, you have to kill a Bernie voter. <laughs> you gotta kill a Bernie voter and take his rose emoji pin off his shirt. Oh, man. Oh, here's another um, fun fact about The Shining Path. They actually led a terrorist assault on the Cuban embassy Whoa. as an act against revisionism. <laughs> Jesus and Christ. I, I literally see, like, I literally see MLMs on Facebook, like, calling this, like, a, a glorious act of revolutionary violence against revisionism. You a communist? Do you want to be like a cheap? Like all those other people, man? Bah, bah, I don't have to listen on. to this bullshit. I mean, 
I'm not like a big defender of the Cuban state or anything, but this is indistinguishable from fascism. That's the thing. I don't use the word red fascism lightly. No, I hate that term. Yeah. But Shining Path is like the closest, I think, to it. <laughs> I think it's worth looking into why there is this slippery slope, apparently, in a lot of Marxist politics to get reactionary. Very few times it gets something you could really call fascist. Let me ask something. Why is it that like Maoism keeps going to like these loony places? Because look, for instance, the United Red Army, right? Those are some students like in Japan who went out into the mountains, but instead of actually like, you know, starting a war, they basically just killed themselves like oh, in a geez. series of like show trials to like purify themselves like revolutionarily or whatever, or like eventually too, we're probably have to do an episode on the Khmer Rouge if we're doing something on Shining Path. Maoism just makes Marxism look insane. Even more insane than it already was. Okay. I just think it Maoism is totally removed from Marxism. I think it's like just it's it's, it's almost like the idealism of it all. It's it's like it's like almost like Sorelianism. It's almost what Sorelianism uh, is to Marxism. I'd very different from what I would consider like Marxism as Marx envisioned it. In a way that Stalinism isn't even. I would even say like Stalinism is more like Marxism than Maoism. I mean, I, I understand why you say that, but I think there's an obvious kind of like bridge there, and there's a lot of ways to this kind of reactionary position, but um. You know, remember, Sorel was a Marxist. Like, the, the old fascists, they were Marxists. Like, there's, there's a way there through a kind of national, national communism. It's not even the nationalists. I think that it's, there's an, almost like an embrace of the kind of primal violence, the, the cult and metaphysics of violence almost, that's very idealistic. And there's, you know, the embrace of the cult of personality. And this is a kind of idea that you can skip historical stages through sheer willpower. It's just an explicit theorization of what's implicit in Stalinism. With a lot of political determinism. But Stalinism has political determinism, in a way. It can, yeah. it can wipe things out. It does, but, it, but it's theorized as economic determinism. You know what? That's a good point. Like, but, like, socialism in one country is the fundamentally a political deterministic project we're going to build an autarky i was actually going to say i was thinking what if the shining path actually won imagine what kind of regime would have come out of it i think it would have been something very similar to the khmer rouge oh, and i absolutely. think this is actually reasonable based on their agrarian policies and the way they tried to force mm. peasants to like abolish money and collectivize all their stuff against their will i can yeah. see they have something very similar to a khmer rouge and the whole strategy is surrounding the cities well surrounding the cities is just is just protracted people's war that's just classic protracted people's war has really only been used successfully once in china well yeah all of these things that people are trying to systematize have only been used successfully once yeah the cuban revolution was a different strategy for example <laughs> Let's call it Focoism and then try to generalize it. Yeah, and so the Maoist MLM argument is that protracted people's war is universal. And they say, well, the five stages or whatever, the exact stages and the exact way it looks may be different, but what's universal is the idea that you have to pick up the gun from the very beginning, and you have to have a military policy from the very beginning, 
And so basically the party begins with the army, and you build the party by engaging against the enemy in violent struggle. Yeah, I thought, like, the thing with um, it being universal was specifically because it was done on, like, an international level. Like, more rural nations would surround imperialist core. No, that's a, that's a different theory. That's what Malice Third Worlders believe, which ah. is distinct from MLMs. Because MLMs still think that there can be revolutionary struggle in the core. I mean, they they basically think that some students, some crunchy students from Boulder, are going to go up into the Rockies and then, you know, descend on Denver. I'm, I mean, in practice, that's not really how they acted. Um, yeah. Oh, no, of course, but, like, that's what this theory implies. Yeah. What the modern-day Maoists argue is that basically, like, the hood is a new countryside, basically. Okay, so that's like the Panthers pivot. And we need to, like, take control of, like, the hood, basically, as almost like a protection racket. Yeah, and uh, the Rancorp document, they describe how, like, Gonzalo and, like, the Shining Path tried to get with the urban poor and that sort of thing. And it was relatively successful until they tried doing this one major attempt at, like, breaking people out of a prison. They, like, attacked a prison. And while this was a major, like, propaganda victory attacking this prison in the capital, it ended up setting them back pretty hard because they lost a lot of lives doing it. And they yeah. lost a lot of people doing it, so... Yeah, their forte was not in the urban areas, basically. And that's yeah. clear from this. But they seem to think that it's rural enough to where this strategy of people's war might actually work. They also worked through a lot of, like, front groups. They worked through a lot of front groups and, like, legitimate organization. Yeah, which is a classic Maoist thing. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, Mao versus Maoism, right? Because the Revolutionary People's Army did not precede uh, the Communist Party in China. I mean, China definitely had, like, some huge disasters as a result of, like, you know, Mao's, like, uh, over-optimistic outlooks on collectivization and things like that. They never went down, like, these in, like, the same kind of seemingly, like, insane, like, psychotic rabbit holes that you see. You know what I mean? I think it's probably because there was a more developed political party where there was like some level of debate within it over, you know, ideology. And you did have like, you know, the dongists and you did have like some moderating forces and it just doesn't, it doesn't completely become like a unhinged, like singular personality cult, like something like say shining path or the Khmer Rouge or something like that. That's actually something that was touched on in the document. The author um, McCormick seems to actually think that, there isn't like a total dictatorship within the leadership of ideology from Guzman, like within the central committee or whatever you call that. The author seems to think that there must be a measure of like feedback within the inner circle because the organization has proven adaptable. So even though there's a cult of personality amongst a lot of like the membership and basically the whole thing is held together by the cult of personality because the people under him regularly get killed well i think that's kind of true for any organization like even the most centralized authoritarian organization can't truly control all of its parts right that makes sense because at the end you still have delegated responsibilities of decision making and you still have 
people in charge of different locals, and you still have decisions that are made that are outside the control of, you know, Gonzalo. And he can never truly control everything. Yeah, but this sounds like on purpose, whereas, like, at the height of the purges, Stalin basically just did get to decide. Right. <laughs> like, there was massive fear of pushback because you, you could be very arbitrarily executed. This wasn't covered, but, for example, there was an infamous massacre where the Shining Path basically killed an entire village. Jesus and Christ. And that massacre was ordered from the top, and they did it out just basically to, to show how violent and brutal they were to scare the enemy. And it was My ordered God. from the very, like, by, by Gonzalo himself. Like, this came from the very top of the organization. So basically, you know, he is able to have an unchecked authority in the organization if he wants. But at the same time, mm. you're right that there's feedback loops and a level of complexity to it that allows it to adapt to different local situations. Yeah, he keeps it rhizomatic while he's massacring people. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a mass organization, though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's not like a real political party. They have front groups. Yeah, exactly. It has popular support, but it is a vanguard party. You have to be thoroughly vetted. Yeah, it's like only the most dedicated professional revolutionaries can be members, nonetheless. Yeah, you have to specifically shoot a cop and get his gun and badge in order to become a member. Wait, it, that's the final step. Yeah, that's that the true? final. Yeah. Yeah, that was in the report. That's the initiation. You have to kill a cop. That way, like... They know that you're for real. They have something to hold against you if you try to betray them. They have something they can easily just snitch on you if you decide to go against the Shining Path. It basically makes it so there's no way out. It's like a gang. You can't leave. It's literally like a gang initiation. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. just against the bourgeois state. I mean, yeah, it's a proto-state, and it's yeah, also totally. a tributary organization because they tax cocoa producers to sell on the international market. Kind of like a mix between a gang and a state. And the common turn party. <laughs> it's crazy. Overall, the RAN report is actually surprisingly sympathetic to the Shining Path. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was gonna bring that up earlier, but it's it's very balanced. I think the author respects like Shining Path's political acumen, and but this is also prepared for like you know state people and like planners. This isn't like designed for the general public. <laughs> They really don't have to like put on the whole show of like these people are reprehensible, and this just shows the evil of communism. You know, uh, Reagan, Bush, you know, eighty six or whatever. Like, it doesn't have to do that because it's just written for you know technocrats. And there was probably live news of all the reprehensible stuff they were doing at the time. I mean, I, I hate to be saying, oh, you know, the the State Department knew these were bad people, but like. This has very little to do with actual Marxism, in my opinion, and it really shows how far Maoism goes for Marxism when you really get to the MLM, basically. Right, I mean, even though the left struggling to make even a patronage relationship with any real workers today isn't going out and bombing Going out people. and bombing people is a symptom of the failure to have a real influence in mass politics and in the workers' movement. It's like a shortcut. It's it's interesting, you know, they're they're terroristic in their approach, but there's this distinct softening that the Rand report talks about them making because even these kinds of fringe politics are forced to exist in a broader social world 
and and the need to relate to the peasants starts outweighing the benefits of terror against them in some cases and and they start focusing terror on like hated government officials like we were talking about earlier but it, it just shows that that this was such a revolution to be made for them than by anyone like there was no mass basis of radical workers driving things it it was a revolution imposed on everyone well, it was fundamentally anti-worker, too. There was one part where they talked about how they would make sure that the peasants basically starved out of the cities, essentially. That the peasants would not give up any of their surpluses to the cities, but instead give it all to the Shining Path. And their idea was to basically deprive the cities of food. And so, this totally like points to the kind of antagonism between workers and peasants. Because peasants want high prices to sell their food at. Whereas workers want low prices to buy their food at. So it's, you know, there's an inherent kind of contradiction there. And it shows the very flaw, among many other things, of trying to have a peasant mass base as a communist revolution. Yeah, and it also just demonstrates the inherent absurdity of having like a, a proto-woke leviathan like kind of party state that is angling for taking over and is always basically going to be making war on the general population is actually what's happening. They're doing it in the name of the general population on the general population. <laughs> like, it, like the people that they're trying to recruit, they will also sometimes massacre. Yeah. And I mean, it just goes into the whole Maoist concept of protracted people's war, which is that the entire struggle for communism is just an armed struggle. They very much see the revolution purely in military terms. There's a difference between protracted people's war and focalismo, because focalismo literally says you can have... Yeah, this isn't focalismo. Yeah, focalismo literally, like, mythologizes the Cuban revolution, which actually had a mass social movement in the cities backing it. And really, they just focus on the adventures of Che and Fidel and pretend that they basically were able to spark a revolution through small vanguard military actions without first having mass support. Whereas the idea of protracted people's war is, they still say you need mass support and that you rely on the masses. So their argument is that this is a different form of uh, guerrilla warfare because it builds itself through the masses. And so you, you see that through their tactics. You know, they are actually trying to go to the masses and recruit them into their army, but it's just this very militarized, centralized structure that's, you know, basically just is going to the masses, but using them as cannon fodder. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think they would be able to be a, a relatively successful insurgency for so long if they weren't tapping into something that's kind of real in terms of, like, a social base. Well, like, there's such discontent with the government of Peru at the time, and they would provoke the government of Peru to be even worse. What they were tapping into was the resentment that these peasants often had towards, yeah. you know, landed elites and richer peasants. You know, I, I talked about this earlier, but for an agrarian society, as you do have these long, deep-seated resentments and desires to revanchism that become very deeply embedded in peasant society and can come out very violently. And The Shining Path kind of prodded at this and used that as a way to win support as kind of like a protectorate 
of the rural areas. Like, yeah, we're people of guns that are going to, like, help you, like, kill your landlord. And we're going to protect you from, you know, anyone who might fuck with yeah, you. That's and, what they did in China, too, like, during the Civil War. That's what they did. Yeah. Too. Oh, yeah, it's totally based off Mao's strategy and trying to make a universalization of Mao's strategy is building red bases in the countryside by mobilizing the peasants. But the thing is, is what Mao, Mao, while he was waging his war, didn't try to communize peasantry, whereas the Shining Path did. The Shining Path literally tried to, like, communize some of their base areas while they were waging the war. And, you know, it tried to force the peasants to collectivize. And the peasants revolted against this mm. in many cases. And this is why that whole kind of mass base they were able to tap into, losing that mass base, because all of a sudden their program stopped going along with their interest. And so over eventually the Shining Path, it tries to kind of sputter out into a legal movement and can't succeed at that level, and so eventually their leader gets imprisoned, and it becomes a drug gang. Just as a point of information, Shining Path in Spanish, Sendero Luminoso. Yeah, Sendero Luminoso. Now, Shining Path, well, it sounds wacky. Sendero Luminoso, sign me up. Oh, yeah, you know? it's, it's an awesome name. God, so that's why they call them Senderistas. No, that's not even the full name, it's... Communist Party of Peru. Well, it's right? more complicated than that. Shining Path is a part of it, but it's like a <laughs> longer name. Let's see. Frente Estudiantil Revolucionario por la Sendero Luminoso de Maria de Guay. Boom. Yeah, it's a mouthful. So that mentions uh, Meritaguay. We should talk about him, because he's an important person. He was one of the founders of the Peruvian Communist Party, and he's also one of probably the main Marxist theorists to talk about indigenous cultures. Yeah. Yeah, his stuff sounds interesting. Like, I'd be curious to look at his work. Yeah, that sounds genuinely interesting, and something that Gonzalo must have ignored while repping. Meritaguay did say that the indigenous peasantry had these kind of communal traditions that could sort of be used to win them over the communism. But the thing is, is that the Shining Path didn't take this road from what I understand. My understanding is that they had a very chauvinistic attitude towards the indigenous peasantry and tried to force their kind of their own ways basically against their own indigenous ways in a way that was very top-heavy and came off as very chauvinistic. And so, it seems to go completely against the... I, that uh, is so puzzling. No, no, I don't understand how they actually take him. How does this work? Like, because there's an interesting variant on, you know, settler colonial nationalism in Latin America. I mean, in Mexico especially, but also in some parts of Latin America, where they sometimes are trying to incorporate indigenous people into their nationalist ideology. doesn't sound like... Peru has done a really good job about that. It sounds like it's much more separate. Like the, the Quechua seem, you know, like trying to do their own thing while the government attacks them and drug gangs attack and exploit them. And then the Shining Path comes along and attacks them and promises to defend them from the drug gangs and the bourgeois state. Becomes a drug gang. Yeah, and then, then morphs into a drug gang. And then massacres them when they don't, you know, go along with their ridiculous policies. It's disgraceful. They touch on that a little bit in here, too, and you you can see the genesis of that where they're talking about just, like, we don't even know how much money these people are taking in, but it's probably a lot because it's the late 80s, early 90s, and they're dealing with coke. 
drugs to let's just do this yeah like, why don't we just like keep this money you know God. imagine if the mlm like imagine yeah. if red guards people are listening to this they'd just be like so disgusted how dare they say this about the most revolutionary organization that ever existed fuck fuck <laughs> the social democrats and fuck the fucking <laughs> social fascists that's what they are some side chats are social fascists i bury those cockroaches <laughs> They sound like a great big pussy just waiting to get fucked. Shining Path had no respect for the indigenous traditions at yeah, all. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. That's what it, I've read at least. I've I've seen Malice say the opposite. Yeah, It's like, well, if they didn't respect the indigenous people, how did they have such a base? <laughs> because they terrorized them in the submission with assassinations. But I mean, what do you think about my theory that, you know, them having guns and being willing to go, like, kill landlords? Oh, yeah. Classic Maoism. They were able to actually get some peasants excited about that and get them on their side initially. Like, I do think that's why they were able to strike a chord with the peasantry at first. It's just that they weren't able to actually mobilize them as a base for communism. Maoism seems sometimes just, like, openly theorized Blancism, where, like... You're kind of like, okay, we're going to do these, like, spectacular, mm. like, propaganda things. I mean, proto-spectacular, but whatever. You know, we're, we're going to try to, like, get in people's heads and, you know, get in the news and shit. Like, hit the right targets and try to get people excited, like, uh, like in Fight Club, you know what I mean? And then, and only then, we're going to establish this crazy-ass dictatorship yeah, yeah. based on our military units from, like, kind of out of nowhere. And be like, hey, we're your best friends, by the way. That's kind of what Maoism feels like to me. The, the more militant anarchist assumptions. Oh, yeah. Uh, but just set out loud instead of, like, you know, wink. Overthrow the state, wink. Oh, wink. yeah, I totally see this as similar to anarchism, to be honest. Because it's a, you know, it's a very centralized authoritarian organization, but there is this sort of decentralized terrorist aspect to it, you know, and this mobilize the people for full liberation, no compromises. You know, we're going to fight straight the full communism is kind of the Shining Paths line. Like, as soon as we take power, there's going to be cultural revolutions. And because Mao showed the way to communism. So they really do believe in this utopian communism in one country. Right. Type, you know, attitude where they want to bring Peru to the communist age. I think what makes, like, American MLMs, like, so absurd is that the entire strategy hinges upon having like sectors of society and sectors in the country that aren't uh in some way like in touch with the state right there's like mass like neglected sectors of society exactly and because the core state itself is so underdeveloped that you can basically go to these sections and you know build an army and build a military thing and they'll just kind of leave it alone you can become a warlord they'll basically just leave it alone because eh, those people aren't doing anything for us anyway and it'd be too expensive to go fuck with them so you know they try to use the hood as like a surrogate for that. But that's not true. That's not how it works in the hood. Like the, there's heavy policing in the hood. The hood is heavily surveilled by the police. So it's just the whole strategy doesn't make sense in America. And it's only just going to lead to insane antics that I'm worried are actually going to go somewhere harmful. Well, there was a time when a gang could basically run the block and the police would just have to deal with it. And there wasn't like this incredible technological advantage that the police could wield to like kind of manipulate them and using like a Foucauldian mass security state to like play them exactly how they need them to run, like fine tune it. Before it really was the kind of relationship that 
uh, Guzman and his Shining Path are exploiting. It's very similar to being a gang. Now it's like a whole different ballgame, at least in the core. I think its appeal is, is born entirely out of a very understandable frustration with the kind of intractable, you know, sort of position that, you know, the left sometimes finds itself in. And so the idea is, well, fuck it. Like, let's just, let's just go beast mode. Let's just, you know, okay. let's just go all out. That's the whole theory of the offensive that the Comintern had in its earliest period was that the um, Social Democrats had so much influence and the working class was so reformist and only a small vanguard of the working class was revolutionary. And so therefore the vanguard party had to launch these kind of offensive actions stir up the proletariat and get them to rise up and just you know this was the march action in germany was an example of this you know on some level i do kind of understand like propaganda the deed stuff because it does force people to go like you kind of find out where people stand where it's like you know something bad happens to some sector of the state or the upper class and then they go a lot of people go oh good good yeah it's like would you hide a Bader meinhoff member <laughs> right right that sort of thing that's how you know if someone's actually cool <laughs> but at the same time it's just such a stupid wasteful strategy right how many thousand people got killed how many like tens of thousand people got killed focoismo is really the worst because all kinds of well maybe not in terms of casualties committed i mean shining path killed a lot of people depends how you're calculating worse i assume you mean utilitarian with like you know the score just in terms of like success focoismo is even less successful than this because they didn't even get that far they just got killed by the government before they ever went anywhere in a lot of cases like lots of young latin american leftists got killed by the government and like all the urban guerrilla groups in europe and the united states those are all just farces like yeah 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 the raf was a joke i mean yeah the, i mean as cool as they were the raf was still a joke I, I watched that carlos the jackal movie and like it was the most like anticlimactic bullshit oh, yeah. carlos like, sucks. six hours i ever spent that guy was like, a douche he was not a communist but it's it's just like what is this guy even doing you know he's an islamist yeah now. yeah but yeah this is this is all pre-mlm though mm. that's the thing is that there's really this this movement of trying to take the shining path and systematize it into what's known as marxism leninism maoism and this is this is really the ideology of modern maoism today for most cases most maoists who call themselves a maoist call are, are an mlm and they see the shining path they as, love this and they love the naxalites that's the other big thing they're into yeah but ne the, the naxalites reject the shining path so like like a lot of mlms are like sectarian towards the naxalites mm. that's remarkable because the naxalites seem to actually be defending indigenous peasants land rights and that sort of thing from the yeah. indian government that's why i critically support them and the interesting thing is that they're have been viral campaigns of support in urban settings there were some professors that were I think, uh, arrested, you know, some police, you know, knocked down their door at six in the morning or something like that. Um, and it was trending in India, like urban Naxal, like, you know, I'm an urban Naxal, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the Maoist party like got behind it, but they didn't like start it. You know what I yeah. mean? It was an outpouring of support because of these like arrests. 
A sea of Anaxals as generally, like you said, defending indigenous people's land rights. Because the Indian state is extremely chauvinist against these indigenous groups. And the Naxalites offer an alternative to being at the mercy of that state. And so while I don't doubt they commit war crimes and stuff, I just, I see it as a different kind of thing than the Shining Path. Yeah, they've retained some dignity. They have some, like, moral weight to their cause at the Shining Path, like, you know, sold for a fat rail of coke. Well, the Shining Path, they, they seem to just, like, at first, they're just, like, so dogmatic and, what's the word? Intransigent, sectarian, ultra-left, like... They really have this vision of just, you know, we're going to be the pure communist or the purest communist. Everyone else is revisionist. That just doesn't, that doesn't work for mass politics. Well, somehow they, they believe that. And then at the same time, it's so clear that to them, they don't believe that the emancipation of the working class is the task of the workers themselves. It's, it's so clearly something they want to impose on society from without. At gunpoint. They reject the whole notion of the proletariat as a subject of history. And they, they would reject this whole idea of, you know, socialism is about, you know, the working class uniting and taking over society and transforming itself. They see it more as it's about having a protracted people's war <laughs> and then waging cultural revolutions. And it's literally about the ideology of the party. This is uh, from reading Maoist Economics. There's a guy, Charles Bettelheim. He's interesting, but... Former planner. You really read him and figure out what he believes and argues. He argues that, really, the ideology of the party determines the relations of production. Politics in command, baby. Yeah, this is politics in command. This You can't get more politics in command. Yeah, this is the Maoist idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, is that the proletariat rules according to whether or not the party carries the correct political line not whether or not the proletariat has any social or actual agency or not so you can have a peasant army march in and establish a dictatorship with the proletariat at gunpoint against the proletariat what happens when the proletariat in your country kind of sucks does it matter what do you do? Ma- like they didn't, you-, you didn't have to win their support in the first place so they just have to work make them work define suck (laughs) well no like they're just they're not they're not doing anything you know they can't they can't get a political party off the ground you know what i mean like they just they're just they're just a turd out there (laughs) have a little faith i mean because the alternative seems to be just going like and pathologically trying to convert them to communism in this way that just doesn't well what are you doing what are you doing Yeah, you armchair critic. They had a fucking peasantry that they could go to and be like, hey, let's all gang up and overthrow the state. <laughs> like, who can you go to and gang up and overthrow the state anymore? The working class. That's the only choice. There's literally no other alternative. Like, It is mystifying to me that the Shining Path is as successful as it is. Like... The government of Peru has established four rural emergency zones, incorporating 50% of Peru's population. So that's how much, like, they would put under martial law, it seems like, at a, at a time sometimes, like, to try to get rid of the Shining Path. And they just kept failing for, like, decades. 
it's really a mystery that these people were able to resist for as long as they did. And I think a lot of it has to do with the character of their enemy, which I would like to talk about. You think you can take me? Give me a fucking army, you're gonna take me! The Peruvian government somehow managed to outdo the Shining Path in terms of psychotic bullshit and just massacring civilians and things of that nature. Yeah, um, one of the things that I thought was most fascinating is that very frequently the rank and file of the Peruvian army and the officers had no common language. Like the officers would speak Spanish and the rank and file speak Quechua and they had no way of communicating with each other. So how's that for a logistical starting point? Yeah. I think that the Peruvian state was probably also just not modernized enough to deal with this level of insurgency. And so this was probably a turning point in the modernization of that state. They were completely focused on their borders. They had no patience and no time for thinking of this. They just thought of it as some Indian problem, you know, some indigenous peasant problem that, you know, it's not a big deal. And they just let it, they just let it spread throughout basically the whole countryside. Like, yeah, they're acting up again. And the thing about the, the massacres is that, like... Kind of what I was saying earlier about how the central power never has complete control. Like, let's say the Shining Path massacre a village, or the right wing massacres a village. In response, the enemy is going to massacre a village and as revenge, because the rank and file are going to be like, fuck it, and like, they killed all of our people, we're gonna kill one for every one of them, you know? And this kind of stuff happened during the Russian Civil War as well where you have this kind of desire for revenge that comes from almost from below and also from within the officers in the army, and it creates this dialectic of violence that can get really nasty. And I think that's probably one of the... If the atrocities committed in this war, it often probably became this duel between two sides to show who was more capable of violence. Right. Schmidt basically points to, like, a major issue in terms of dealing with like insurgencies in general, in theory of the partisan, basically there's a point within it where he talks about like the nature of the partisan, you know, the insurgent is that they're among the citizenry. So in in trying to fight them, the state, the state, the national actor has to like sort of like weed through the citizenry to find the partisans. And often what ha- ends up happening is that they just sort of blindly fire into the citizenry and just end up killing civilians because they can't really tell the difference between the partisans and the civilians because the partisans' dual nature is that they're both soldier and civilian. Yeah, that's basically every guerrilla war. And this ends up feeding into the popularity of the insurgency. This continuous, like, missteps on the part of the government continually feeds into the strength of the insurgency that's what's so like sticky about insurgencies like when you're fighting a national liberation war you do have a certain advantage because all there you have to do is just not lose though eventually the occupying force can grow disinterested but when you're fighting like the government the peruvian government can't go govern somewhere else you know what i mean they can stick around like that but i think the peruvian government is far more prepared to go the distance than say like a you know like a occupying like foreign force would be you can't rage that same war of attrition you have to take power or something not that i really endorse any of this but (laughs) you can't wage that 
because eventually, you know, you make it too expensive for France to keep fighting you or something, right? Right, right. But you can't, but if it's, if you're fighting your own government, it's like that government needs to be like in, which in, in fairness, at the time, it looked like the Peruvian government really was, you know, like the Cuban revolution was, was basically internal, but there was a severe crisis of, of state that they were able to use like there were like mass strikes in the cities and so on and so forth yeah they had a huge popular front in the city yeah right and they talk about how like the populist president of peru basically came in really popular he was accepted by all the classes of peru and he came in there with high approval ratings and then just absolutely his economic policies immediately proceeded to fail and he fell flat on his face um getting like a 10% popularity in trying to flee the country like multiple times well and they also discuss how they have like in the military the the military there has basically taken power before and had no qualms about doing it the society you know more or less accepted it and the military also saw itself as kind of you know basically committed to the regime but not the man yeah so you didn't have like the same kind of like maybe corruption that you would have like in under like the batista regime and the other thing is like you know the military coup option was a thing that would probably invite some backlash but if they weren't too like heavy-handed in terms of like going after shining path they could potentially navigate that at least in the opinion of the author of this report yeah the author seems to believe that any kind of ground gained by the peruvian left would be like immediate trigger for like the military to like do a coup because the military believes that the shining path has infiltrated the the legitimate left which well it was also it was also trying to infiltrate the army which is probably another like again like if that had been successful that would have been a pretty smart move and could have served to destabilize like the state further a weird thing with american mouse is that they don't like the idea of infiltrating the army or trying to recruit from the military at all yeah well, they'd have to go be imperialist somewhere, so. <laughs> Which is, yeah, I think they don't understand the difference between cops and soldiers. But I thought I wanted to bring to the table maybe comparing Shining Path to another organization in Latin America that also fought a guerrilla war, the FSLN, or the Sandinistas. Which I think, compared to the Shining Path, are just a completely different organization. Oh, there's really no contest. Yeah, I mean, not just in terms of what's better. Obviously, I find the FSLN far more admirable, and you know, they're a relatively democratic organization. The Clash yeah. thing about them. Yeah, the Clash never named an album <laughs> after Gonzalo. Shining Path, yeah. Well, one of the guys from Raising Against the Machine like Shining Path. But, well, um, that, that would make well, a good one? metal album. I think uh, Zach De La Rocha. Awesome. Oh, really? I feel like that would make Rage Against the Machine cooler. He's really into the Zapatistas. Well, the thing is, Zapatistas didn't actually fight, like, a guerrilla war, like the Sandinistas did. But the Sandinistas were more like a political party, and they had different factions, they ran in elections, they were very big on developing support from broader civil society. And it's really interesting how they actually had three different factions of the FSLN, one that was more focused on national liberation, one that was more focused on organizing the workers, and one that was kind of like a popular front of both. And so they just had a very different approach to organizing, and 
they still were able to win a guerrilla war without this insanely heavy-handed approach of the Shining Path. And I guess you could just say, oh, well, they had Soviet help, so... But I think that that's actually overstated in a way. Because even with Soviet help... But I mean, when you have Soviet help, that's when you want to do something like this. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, the Shining Path were anti-Soviet. Which is awesome, because people tried to smear them as being, like, part of the Cold War. And, you know, they were constantly going out against Soviet revisionism. It's amazing. It's, they're, they're so incomprehensible. Yeah. Well, so much that they fucking murdered Cubans. Wow, They murdered Cuban that. proletarians just to win points against revisionism. I'm gonna carve him up real nice. They weren't getting arms funneled from anybody except maybe what they could buy on the black market or what they stole from the government. Mal's protracted people's wear would not have worked if he was getting regular gun shipments from the USSR. Yeah, but also they had the cocaine trade of the Shining Path. Yeah. Think about that. So that, that, probably subst- that probably substituted, though, as, you know, a source of income and flow for weapons and money. Eventually, yes, but, Soviet you know, trade. it's hard to buy, like, real, like, heavy shit. Oh, yeah, you gotta start out small, obviously, yeah. but, you know, there's just a lot of coca. They obviously were able to milk that for what it was worth. I wonder how much heavy artillery you could afford on the black market from, like, you know, from the coca trade. I don't really know much about the on-the-ground tactics, actually. Well, they, they mention a lot how there's a lot of pipe bombs and a lot of, like, homemade engineered solutions. And a lot of the, like, the brigades that, like, because the Peruvian military was using, like, kind of, like, untrained people to, like, send out to get them, and, and they were, like, fighting the Shining Path with shotguns. So I can't imagine, like, the Shining Path, like, had, at least for, at least in the early stages up to the time of this report, the most, like, sophisticated weaponry. You guys should have a protracted uh, Kratom People's War in Florida. We already have a protracted People's War going on in Florida. Who who are the comrades that are heroically picking up the gun and heading into the swamps? The Florida Communist Front. Florida Communist Front is forming a protracted People's War in the Everglades. It's going to be epic. Cuba's going to invade Miami. (laughs) And we're going to get a nuke as early as possible. And... Honestly, I want Cuba to invade Miami. Yeah. Like, if Cuba invaded Miami, that'd be the greatest day of my life. I don't care if we all die as long as Cuba invades Miami. Donald, I'm going to stop you right there. No, I mean, I want to see, like, I want to see Marco Rubio crying on TV. (laughs) And, like, I want all those people to have whatever little, like, properties they bought up, whatever little real estate bubble they got going from the remnants of, like, whatever they sold off their Bacardi things, to have that yes. taken, too. Down with the Gusanos. And then they have to go live in Georgia and then bitch about it till their dying days. Yes, down with the Gusanos. We're going to put up statues of Che all over Little Havana, and we're going to yeah. have big rallies singing the Internationale. <laughs> I want all the old people who didn't, like, kill themselves, I want them to actually get, like, good health care. You know, yeah, and then have to yeah. begrudgingly take it with like a chase stamp, like on their medicine. Bottle, <laughs> yeah, like but yeah, like a voucher for their health care that has like a like a picture of Che or Lennon or something. <laughs> yeah, my friend got me a a Che uh, keychain when he was in Argentina. So I oh. he was from Argentina. Che Guevara was such an unconscious trot. We already had this discussion though, so let's get back to Shining Path. Yeah, uh, let's let's talk about the uh, military hardware they were working with. There are some real fun things here. Um, so they had the standard Molotov cocktails 
They also made these improvised grenades with nails in them. Yeah, um, and I mean, that's that's, they, that's standard, they like would, homemade fare. Right, but they would use an indigenous-inspired slingshot. Like, that's their weaponry against the government. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing they did as well as they did, you know? It, it's, they're still going, too, you know? I, they, can still, they can turn this thing around. It's the fourth quarter, but, you know, they're not out of the game yet. I mean, are they pretty much out of the game? Yeah. Like... It's kind of weird, like, looking at the way this, like, kind of translates to American Maoism, but at the same time, it doesn't. Okay, before, like, the Red Guards started, like, showing up in the United States, there was this liaison committee for creating, like, a Maoist, like, a major Maoist party in the United States. And they were, like, organizing, like, through students and that sort of thing, trying to do the Shining Path sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I'm sure the coordination of, of a bunch of Maoists in the First World went really well. They were trying to form a new Communist Party. They were setting up front groups. They were, like, infiltrating, like, NGO groups in the United States. They were relatively successful for a while, relatively small steps and then it kind of just fell apart because like these the maoid clique that was like really really growing like around c-u-y acronym used for like that one new york c-u-n i want to say cunty but that's not the word is it it (laughs) c-u-n-y yeah that's a cunty university it's so cool might as well be cunty because they turned out to be hiding like a sexual predator whoa and that's what caused the whole thing to just crumble was that and it just caused like a whole bunch of drama and the the people that were like working towards this ended up just either like quitting politics altogether going to the freedom realm socialist organization or whatever organizations that they could go to or they ended up being the foundations of the red guards red guard austin That's it for this week. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play stores. The easiest and freest way to help us out is to leave a good review on iTunes. Costs zero dollars a month, but its effect is priceless. If you'd like to donate more than zero dollars a month, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. You can choose episodes or just get them early. Next week, Swampside will be broadcasting in glorious 1D as we go down the depressing elitist rabbit hole of Herbert Marcuse's 1964 landmark work, One Dimensional Man. Keep your boots clean, comrades. <laughs>